0: This episode sponsored by Clio, cloud-based practice management software, makes it easy to manage your law firm from intake to invoice. Try it for free at Clio.com. That's C L I O dot com. C L <laughs> I O Hello and welcome to another edition of On the Road with Legal Talk Network. This is Michael Semanchik. I'm the managing attorney at the California Innocence Project and I'm the host for today's show which is being recorded on location at the 2019 Clio Cloud Conference in San Diego, California. Joining me now I have Shaka Sangor. Welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. i
0: happy to have you. Um, Before we get to our uh, topic, tell us about yourself, what you do, where you work, and that kind of thing.
1: Yeah, so I am a writer. It's my primary occupation, the thing I love doing the most. So I write books, I write for the stage, I write TV, and I'm eventually looking to write for movies as well. But um, I'm a producer as well and the director of various projects, and that's what gets me excited. And all of my work is really centered around creating social impact um, in whatever space that I work in and primarily in the space of criminal justice and second chances.
0: And you came to this kind of in a different path that I would say than most people, as far as being a writer and, and, you know, one day hoping to produce. Uh, so why don't we go there and talk about that? Um, you were convicted of a crime, and yeah. this happened back in, I believe,
1: 1986? Nineteen ninety-one. Oh, sorry. Yeah, 1991. I'm not that old, Michael. Come okay. on, bro. No. <laughs> it's all good. Take uh, us back to that. Yeah, so, I mean, you know, 1991, I was convicted of second-degree homicide, sentenced to 17 to 40 years in prison. I ended up serving a total of 19 years, seven of those years, in solitary confinement. And, you know, I was fortunate to be released in June of 2010, June 22nd to be exact, one day after my 38th birthday. So at that point, I spent half of my life in, half of my life out, and I'm coming up on 10 years of being free. Congratulations yeah, on, you.
0: on your freedom and, and yeah. your freedomversary, as, as uh, we call it at the as California Innocence Project. Yeah. So having spent all of that time in prison, uh, you had kind of mentioned earlier today at the conference, you were talking about uh, some, of, some of your mentors that you met you met in prison and how they sort of steered you in the right direction. And you spent some time in solitary and, um, you know, or I think maybe what they call a, a management problem in the system. Uh, talk to us about
1: the mentors that you met and how you came upon them. So I, I've met some of the most incredible um, philosophical and, and strategic thinkers in the world. You know, when I was incarcerated, these are men who By the time I arrived at prison, they probably had 20 years in on a life sentence. So a lot of them are coming up on either having 40-plus years in now. And And these are fellow inmates. not these these were were men who were serving life sentences, uh, who are still serving life sentences. Some of them have unfortunately died in prison. And, you know, these, these men saw something in me I didn't see in myself at the time. They saw me as being redeemable, and they guided me to books. And, like, we would have these very intense debates around the contents of the books I was reading, you know, Malcolm X and, you know, a lot of philosophy books and, you know, Plato's Republic, you know, James Allen as a man think of. And, like, those books allow me to really develop into a man, to grow, you know, as a thinker. Um, and it's, it's one of the greatest gifts I've ever been given is the the love and thirst to acquire knowledge. And, you know, I was fortunate, though. I was, you know, when I went to prison, I was literate. Unfortunately, not a lot of people in prison are highly literate, uh, if literate at all, and so I was able to take advantage of, you know, the gift of, of receiving books from other guys who challenged my thinking.
0: I think it's interesting to talk about the the mentors that actually we're stepping up and giving you this guidance. They weren't provided by the state counselors or anything like that, professionally trained. These are actually fellow inmates. And we've seen in a couple of our cases where the same thing has happened, where people are getting in trouble, our clients get in trouble, and then other inmates say, get your act together. So where can we fix or what can we do in the system to provide mentors for everybody to kind of change the system. and
1: Yeah, I'm, you know, I'm actually happy that you asked that question. And one of it starts with how do we actually define people who are incarcerated, right? So I personally steer away from the, the word inmate, prisoner, ex-con, because what I think that's done in society is that it, it takes the human element out. You know, these men are fathers, they're brothers, they're uncles, they're, they're people. big homies, they're people. You know, I know some people would say it's kind of a stretch to say it's kind of like a hidden treasure, but the reality is it's a hidden treasure of wisdom, you know, and life experience and people who have actually been through the worst that society has to offer and figured out how to remain resilient, how to be thoughtful, how to be introspective, you know, and so they share those lessons with young men coming through the system, you know, and and I, when I think about even my work on the outside mentoring uh, young men and women, I always just think about how much better a lot of our communities would be if we had access to that wisdom in a consistent way, you know. And unfortunately, we live in a society that throws people away. And we don't think about how do you redeem these people? How do you give them space to add value to community and not just house them until they're dead, you know. So I always talk about them like they impacted my life greatly. You know, my friends, they still call me from prison. I write them. Uh, we're still connected in a lot of ways, so I'm I'm happy that that was a question that you'd like to, that you asked because I think it's so important for people to understand that there are men and women who exist inside prisons who can add a lot of value to society. Certainly,
0: yeah. Um, I want to talk to you about June twenty second, twenty ten. Take us back to that day. What? How did that day go? Uh, What'd you eat?
1: What'd you where'd you go? Who'd you see? Man, um, you know, I, I I reflected on that day a lot, and some of it is a blur. Uh, I think the first few days kind of mixed together in my head a lot, um, but you know, I, I couldn't wait to get out. You know, I, at the time, I was in a relationship uh, that I'm, I'm no longer in that relationship. But I came home. My uh, my then girlfriend at the time picked me up. She had my oldest son with me, and the first thing I did when I walked out of the parole office is I sold a book in the parking lot. Uh, so that was my first thing. I've, and I've been selling books ever since then. So it was important for me to kind of set the tone for what I wanted to do with my life. I went from there, you know, I went, went home and got a chance to spend time with family. Um, it's We kind of ended up having like an impromptu kind of gathering of my siblings and people from the neighborhood. And you know, I went up to my mom's shop and just hung out there. My stepmom uh, went up to her shop and hung out there. And it was just, it was fun. You know, my sister was like, why are you up here? You should be somewhere doing some other stuff. I was like, well, you know, I'll get to that later. <laughs> <It was> like, <laughs> um, But no, it was great. You know, it's, it's and coming up on my 10 year now, you know, so I'm actually in the process of celebrating being home for 10 years and I'm doing 10 unique things to, you know, symbolize my celebration. That
0: sounds amazing. Yeah. What would you say was the most difficult thing to overcome when you came home? I mean, I know there were, um, from when you went in to when you came out, technology certainly changed. Um, I know when you're in prison, you, um, you don't have all of the, the choices that you can make. Yeah. Um, so, in other words, like, for, for people that are listening, you might only have two different toothbrushes to choose from at, at the commissary. You get home, um, were choices difficult with technology?
1: What was, what was, like, the, the most challenging I mean, thing? Everything, driving, you know, I mean, prior to getting out of prison, I think the fastest I had moved on my own was like however fast it took me to run around the track. So going from that to driving a car 70 miles per hour was like kind of like white knuckle scary in a sense. Um, And like some things had changed, you know, in terms of geographically, so I didn't quite know my way around the city. So that was interesting. Technology, of course, like when I went to prison, there was no internet, so... To come home to this, you know, uh, means of connecting to people all over the world globally was just, like, crazy. I didn't know the difference between, like, a Word document and the Internet. So every time I got ready to save a Word document, I would ask, you know, my my then-girlfriend at the time, like, yo, am I going to get a computer a virus? So it was just like, you know, when I look back now, I laugh, but it was also painful. You know, it was painful to know that I was trying to catch up on... 20 years of the world evolving without me. Um, I think for the first year, I ate mostly, you know, chicken wings and hamburgers, uh, things that were pretty easy for me to not think about. You know, I would go in restaurants and the menus just seemed so overwhelming. I mean, it was things like that. It was uh, being around a lot of people, you know, uh, having people behind me in restaurants and in close proximity in prison like that would have never happened. So I had to adjust to just being, you know, okay with like, proximity to people. And it's just a lot of, a lot of things, um, your depth of field, people don't think about that, like being able to distinguish how far away you are from something. Cause you're like, when you're in such a contained world, everything is kind of in, in proximity. So you get out in the vast world and it, it kind of distorts your vision. Um, you know, so it, it took a while for that, you know, adjusting to sleeping through the night, you know, in a soft bed and, you know, compared to like that hard matches I was on for years. You know, having a soft pillow, you know? I never forget the first taste of, like, orange juice when I got out. I don't really want to plug the brand because they're not pan me, but, um, but I actually drunk some Simply's orange juice when I first got out. And it was, like, the best experience ever because, like, 20 years, all I had drunk was, like, the artificial, fake, generic, whatever, you know, bland. And so to drink some orange juice, it, it literally felt like I was biting into, like, the juiciest orange and so I'll never forget what that felt like. Um, you know, just eating a breakfast that was cooked with love. You know, food that was cooked with, with love, you know. And, I mean, it's just so many things. Being able to select my own clothes and figuring out what I want to wear in shoes. I have a pretty extensive sneaker habit. Well, not habit. Sneaker collection. And I actually was having a conversation one day about, like, why do I buy sneakers all the time? And I realized that part of me, me buying sneakers is because I didn't have choice for nearly 20 years of what I wore. And so I guess I'm kind of overcompensating in that way. Yeah. Wow. Uh,
0: that's all super fascinating. and so I think especially for the people that are listening, uh, there's uh, shifting gears there. There's a lot of lawyers that are listening in, um, what's something that lawyers can do differently or better, um, uh, to communicate with people on the, on, that are inside uh, a prison. Uh, I don't know if you were interacting with lawyers, but um, you know, are they, how are they communicating? Are, are they communicating effectively? What can lawyers do better to assist people that are, that are in prison?
1: I think a couple of things. I think, sadly and unfortunately, in our communities, oftentimes the first time we come in contact with a lawyer is we're already in trouble. And I think if we can break down some of those barriers, whether it's running legal clinics in communities, whether it's just coming out and hanging out in communities at the barbecue, you know, and, you know, and I know money is time and time is money, right? And so it's hard to spend time with a family, you know, who you're, who's loved when you're trying to free. But I think there's so much to be said about knowing who that the whole person is, not just what they're charged with and knowing the community that they come from. I think you can advocate and fight when you have a deeper understanding of who people are and what their experiences has been. So uh, that part, I also think going back inside prisons, you know, just in general to fellowship with, you know, women and men who are incarcerated, there's a lot of people who are still fighting their cases. Um, And unfortunately, they don't have the resources or the means to, you know, get appeal attorneys. But I think to be able to come in and run workshops and create connectivity, I think that That's a game changer. You know, I think like even with prosecutors and judges, I think part of their work should be to actually visit prisons like, you know, bi-monthly or something, you know, so they can actually see, you know, here's here's what you're actually doing in people's lives. You're really throwing people away. And the person you sentenced today is not going to be the same person you sentenced like in five years. They'll be different, you know, and they should be able to see that and they should have to see that so that they can understand like what justice really is.
0: Right, and I, you said something earlier today that um, I just want to repeat for the listeners, and that's that people are judging you for the rest of your life for your worst mistake that you made, and it shouldn't be like that. Absolutely. You got five years under your belt, and you're, you're still locked up. If somebody comes and visits you, they should see you for all of the great things that you're, you're providing to society. I want to give you a hypothetical. You are starting right now the warden of a prison. What are you going to do differently, or what are you going to change?
1: So if I was the warden of the prison, I think I would, hmm, it's a hard one, man. Like, my friends are in there, so I'm thinking about what would make my friends happy, right? <laughs> yeah. uh, no, but I, I think I would really think more comprehensively about not just education, because I think that's the easy thing, right, to in- increase education, but, like, mental health. Like, I think that's so important. And not just the therapist who is trying to identify you as a sociopath, but actually like real therapists, people who can really sit um, with with the women and men on the inside and really help them process all the traumatic experience they've had. And then other part, I would let system impacted people come back in. Um, sadly, a lot of wardens are resistant to, you know, formerly incarcerated women and men coming back to the prisons. When in actuality, they're the people that's needed the most. And then other thing would be to ensure that the literature coming inside is reflective of their experience. Like a lot of the books that are banned in prison are the books that people in prison actually need to be read. Like my book is banned in, in a lot of prisons, which, which you think would be like the craziest thing ever, right? right? Here's a guy who turned it all around, became really successful. And there's the structure of how he turned it around and then you ban this book from prison. So to me, I'm like, okay, you don't want people to be inspired to turn their lives around. So those are things that I would change immediately. Right.
0: Yeah, I mean, what's the point of of prison if you're not going to allow people to, you know, read and reform, especially something that you like that you're talking about that you wrote? Uh, I want to talk, uh, this is going to be our last uh, substance question, given our time constraints, but I wanted to talk about your accomplishments. Uh, You spent four and a half years in solitary, and during that time, you wrote a number of books. Uh, your first book you wrote in 30 days, then you wrote another book in 30 days. Uh, how many total books did you end up writing?
1: So I've written a total of uh, six books. I self-published four of them. Uh, I originally self-published Writing My Wrongs, which is, went on to be picked up by a mainstream publisher and became my most popular book. I'm actually working on getting prepared to write a new book that I'm excited about. So, we're talking
0: seven books, and probably. Yeah, this will
1: be my seventh book. I've written a stage play, which is, we're in the process of getting that uh, produced. I just wrote a one man show, which I'm excited about. I'm directing and producing uh, a documentary on my life post incarceration. Really, it's more about this 10 year celebration. I'm doing a bunch of crazy, interesting things, I'm going skydiving. I'm throwing a tattoo party that you guys are welcome to join me. I'll be there. On am um, scuba diving. I'm going to Ghana, Tokyo. I am actually going to get a group of people from all type of diverse backgrounds to do uh, 23andMe, like figure out where we're all from and see how much we have in common, more so than what we have different. So I'm just doing a lot of like cool stuff around bringing people together.
0: So you got over a million views on your TED Talk. You've yeah. got... You got a bestseller. We were on the bestseller New York Times list. You were a top five interview uh, interview of Oprah. Yeah, that was incredible. And uh, and you met Obama not once but twice.
1: Yeah, met met President Obama a couple of times. Um, it, it's is definitely like some of my favorite experiences, and especially like the first time I actually went to the White House, they wouldn't let me in. Why is that? Because of my felony. Wow. And so they had wow. they eventually. Uh, changed the policy. I eventually got in that day and I was supposed to meet him and he ended up getting called up to speak like right before I got a chance to meet him. And so it was like about a year or so later that I actually met him for the first time. And then I met him again uh, in 2018. So the fascinating guy, like just, you can see how, like why he was the president when you were in his presence. He's just such a stately person with, Um, Great command of energy and great commanding energy. Super smart and very charming. Yeah.
0: So all of those things, one of the things that really struck me is you said you were sitting in solitary and you thought to yourself, up until this point in my life, I do not have a single accomplishment. Yeah. Now you got all those things. (laughs) Yeah. You feel accomplished now?
1: I think... I have my moments where, you know, it's kind of like, I'm one of those people where it's like, you know, I kind of just put my head down and work. Um, I think one of the reasons that I'm actually doing this 10-year celebration is because I do want to acknowledge, you know, the things that I've accomplished. I want to acknowledge what my experience has been. I really want to acknowledge what I've contributed to the conversation of criminal justice reform. And so for the first time, I'm really like super present in like who I am in the world. You know, it's like... You know, you win a couple of awards, you're like, oh, that was cool. But then you start having these experiences where you see the impact of your work on a broad spectrum of people. I mean, you know, when I when I sat across from Oprah doing an interview, I didn't know what to think of that. You know, I was like, okay, done an interview. I was like super present in it, but it was also like surreal because, I mean, she's like such a masterful listener and, and a masterful uh, conversationalist, you know, and so... After, after having that experience, I thought I would go home and just be like, oh, my God, I did Oprah, and that would be it. But she actually called me, like, the same day. And we've since become friends. And, wow. you know, um, she reaches out to me occasionally. And, you know, whenever we see each other, it's all love. But to know that my story touched her in such a way that she began to think about how does she incorporate that into the art that she's producing. I mean, like, there's no greater, you know... Uh, accomplishment than knowing that you have inspired, you one of the most inspirational people in the world who inspires millions of people to think differently about a subject and um, to make that type of connection but also to be able to go in a community where, you know, I'm working with people who nobody knows their name but they're just incredibly dope people who inspire me and keep me going and just always have just kind and thoughtful words to say so to me that's the biggest thing is celebrating the connectivity I have with other human beings and the authenticity uh, in which these connections happen. And there's nothing better than that. Truly amazing. Amazing yeah. story. Well, it looks like we've reached the end of the road on this episode. I want to yeah. thank Shaka for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited and I uh, hope that people reach out. You know, they can find me on all my social medias up under my name, Shaka Singor. So at me, at Shaka Singor. That's S H A K A S E N G H O R. And I'm super responsive to messages when they're thoughtful and kind and, and considerate. So reach out, connect. Let's figure out how to do more work in the world.
0: Awesome. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. If you like what you heard, please rate and review us in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcasting app. I'm Michael Semanchik, Managing Attorney at the California Innocence Project. Until next time, thank you for listening. Consult a lawyer.